All right. Happy Friday, everyone. And we are back with another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we're exploring the landscape of learning technology while cutting through the fluff to help you go digital, do digital learning right. Um, so today I'm joined by Wendy Hamilton. She's the chief executive officer over at TechSmith, and they have a portfolio of products that I think most everyone who would be watching this should be very familiar with. And if you're not already, you will be by the time we're done here. Uh, and so we're talking about visual communication, simplifying that, but also really the role we play in learning and development and as instructional designers when it comes to technology. So if you're joining us live, go ahead and give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in somebody who'd benefit from the conversation. And while you're at it, comment and tell us where you're joining from. Let us know where you're joining from. So I am joining, as always, from the ever-beautiful Waukesha, Wisconsin. Wendy, you are in Lansing, Lansing Michigan, Michigan, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Is it warming up? Is it warming up there yet? That's my good news is I did not see snow outside this morning yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I know it's, it's still cold here. It's going to be cold for a little bit yet, but I think Sunday, it's supposed to be in the mid 50s, which, as you know, from the Midwest means board shorts, flip flops and, <laughs> and time to go tanning out in the yard. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So before we get going uh, on, on the topic of TechSmith and all that good stuff, the question of the week and those of you watching, I want to I want your answers, too. But this is a little bit of a unique one. So you've had some time to prepare. If you had a time machine. Okay, if you had a time machine, but it could only go one way, backwards or forwards in time, which way would you go and why? Oh, I don't even hesitate for that answer. Okay. I, I definitely go future. I've already seen the past. I'm a tech chunky. I want to see what happens with uh, self-driving cars and um, okay. home automation and you know all that kind of stuff. It's a little bit scary to go forward. Like, are we? Still going to be at home with no social contact? Is okay. AI of twenty thirty, and we're still we're still at home? That'd be a little unnerving. Yeah, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. I think I think yeah. the risk of finding out what went wrong is is worth seeing how technology progressed. Okay, interesting, interesting. So for me, I actually I see I again I had the home court advantage, so I had some time to prepare longer than you did. I struggled with this one because I was like, ah, oh, I don't I don't even know if I'd want to get in a time machine, but I actually would probably choose going back and not because I'd want to less necessarily see things that I already knew about, but to experience some of the history, like way in the back and actually see what it was like firsthand mm -hmm. to me would be fascinating. My concern with going into the future would be if I already knew where we were going to go, it would be less exciting for me to experience it firsthand. And I'm, I'm afraid I would be too busy trying to like, figure it out then when I came back to be like, okay, now how do I actually get ahead of that? So, but again, again, see, I think I spent way too much time thinking about it. It's supposed to just be an icebreaker question. I turned it into something different. So no, that's awesome. That is awesome. All right. So um, as we get into it, you know, TechSmith, you've been, we talked about this a little before we went live. You've been the CEO for, for four years, but TechSmith has been around for a lot longer than that and was started by your dad. So with that one, tell me a little bit, tell everybody, because again, I think a lot of people are familiar with the company and the products, but what, what was kind of the story of TechSmith? How did it get its start and, and how did it get to where it is today? 
Sure. Well, it's it's been around actually quite a while. It was founded in 1987, so so 33 years uh, in in February was our anniversary. Um, my my father, um, um, you know, learned electrical engineering when he served in the army, which was basically made him a computer genius back back then. Although I think he was a, a sociology <laughs> major. Um, and he worked um, for Michigan State Department, actually doing large um, computer statistics work. And then this thing called the PC was was invented. And this is back when when someone said PC in every office, that'll never happen or, or whatever. <laughs> and he, um, as a hobbyist, got really interested in them and ultimately left his secure job at the state to... Um, pursue independently consulting on how to, you know, go in back then, go in the back door and set up a little PC network for the finance department to run the equivalent of Excel or whatever. That that was a big thing to do secretly that the IT people didn't know about or whatever. Um, And he never did it because he was going to make a lot of money or something. He never even thought that that would ever happen. He did it because of what what he was passionate about. And that consulting business grew and they actually created Snagit 30 years ago um, to do documentation themselves on consulting. Um, there wasn't a great way to back then to take even a picture of Windows and they needed to leave how-to information behind for how to connect to your network or do this or that. Um, and they, they had this asset and it was also just the beginning of the internet. <laughs> which is also weird. Isn't it funny to uh, think that that's like 30 years ago? You know, some people may not even, this is their normal. They can't even imagine a world without it. 30 years ago. It just didn't exist. They actually originally shared Snagit as freeware. And then okay. when p- parts of their consulting business got um, displaced by just core Windows operating system functionality, they started to convert to a, a product business. And then they originally made it... Um, free for personal use, paid for okay. corporate use. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you, I was working consulting at a large pharmaceutical company early in my career and Snagit had gone viral. Like people just downloaded it from the internet and installed it. And then what would happen is, you know, purchasing agent or IT person would go, oh no, we, we're not allowed to have this. It's okay. illegal to be using without paying. And they would call TechSmith, no sales department, just engineers. <laughs> they would call tech, TechSmith and say, ah, I've got 200 seats. What do I owe you? That's wow. how it became. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it became that way. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So Snagit, so it starts, so TechSmith actually started as a consulting company that then Snagit became part of the portfolio. And then how did it go from, okay, that to just, I mean, cause now you've got more than just Snagit. So it became really a software company. That's, that's really what you would consider yourself now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, for those who, who don't know, Snagit is a um, general purpose screen capture tool that's largely used to create how to images or very uh, s- simple videos um, explaining a, a process or, you know, capturing some information. And then Camtasia was the next product and it was a total natural evolution. Um, and that's a full screen recorder, video editor. Um, yeah, video, video editing studio. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that came out, I'm guessing, I'm not actually sure, seven years later after Snagit. And those two products are still the bulk of our revenue today, which is unheard of in the software 
industry too, that a 30 year old product has, has stayed relevant, but there's always a new digital media pain point. And we just yeah. stay in tune with that and evolve um, to, to solve those newest pain points. Okay. And then we, um, you know, we have um, an additional offering in uh, lecture capture, uh, which is quite uh, important Th- these days. We have um, the, the largest market share for um, academic lecture capture glo- globally. Um, and that product is uh, Relay, but we're actually rebranding it. You're rebranding it. Yeah. Yeah. We're combining a lot, a lot of our cloud products and rebranding them to okay. Nomia eventually. There's no shortage of changes going on then. No, you know, you have to evolve. Yeah. If well, you want and that's to really, so I can say, so I can say on this one, because I've used Snagit maybe not 30 years ago, I, I wasn't using it, but um, you know, probably late nineties, you know, early two thousands, I was using and looking at where Snagit has come from right what it was i mean i remember back when it still was a powerful tool because to your point back in the day there wasn't a good way to even capture mm-hmm. your screen you know it right. without it being clunky and all this stuff which i got my start in software and that was a nightmare right mm-hmm. it, the product developers change change something you're like oh my gosh like i've <laughs> got to go back and recapture all this stuff and that's how i found snag it was but where it is today I, mean, I don't even know that you would just call it a screen capture tool anymore. I mean, it it can do that, but I mean the 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 capability is far more robust than than simply you know snippet from from Windows or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, we have um, we still target very s- simple uses. Yeah. We just don't want people to get frustrated or cause confusions trying to explain something to a coworker or customer about how something works, right? What, what's, what's changed is um, people have do that even more professionally. They want to be quick, but look professional. And that, yeah. that's really where we target. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what we talked about a little bit is, you know, before we came on was the fact that there are tools out there that are more robust, maybe more, you know, can do fancier some of these things. But even myself, sometimes it's like, I don't need to, I don't need to take the Ferrari out of the garage. I'm fine with taking, taking the Chevy because it can do everything I need it to do. And it's, and it's much easier. So, uh, so with that one, right. So that's, that's what Snagit is. Then we've got, then, then Camtasia came along and that, you know, was for screen, screen recording, um, you know, folks who are watching, I'd, I'd love to know how many of you are familiar with this stuff. Cause that's, that's how I used Camtasia and actually Snagit didn't used to have video capabilities, right? That's, that's relatively new, isn't it? Yeah. I, I remember I back, back in the day and now I'm, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but back in the day, it was like Snagit was for pictures. Camtasia was for video. Yeah. Now Snagit can do both, right? Yeah. The the video application for Snagit is kind of one one take videos that you're not going to edit. You know, you're just I'm capturing this conversation right right now and sending it off. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Camtasia is a full um, nonlinear editor and transitions and you know you all got the layers that. and right yeah. yeah there's there's a ton of stuff which you know we can we can start talking about some of this stuff uh, in the context of how this is changing the role of the instructional designer but I know officially it's not official official but there's some changes coming to Camtasia right am I am I not mistaken <laughs> yeah our new next major release Camtasia 2020 is coming in four days the 28th yeah 
four days. All right. Right around the corner. I know I, I know I'm excited about it um, with that one. So for, for people who are watching, if you're if you're a Camtasia user, there, there's things there's things right around the corner. Um, so with that, let's talk a little bit about two things. This, this kind of leads me to go two places. One, one of the things that I've always found valuable about whether it's TechSmith products or just kind of this concept, and I think this was maybe more what your dad was trying to get at, was when it comes to software, one of the biggest things people need is these resources, right? They don't always need formal training. Like, I don't need an e-learning on how to put in an expense report. I need a resource that just walks me through the steps. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, as instructional designers and, and learning professionals, and honestly, even non L&D professionals, because that's not even your only target audience, correct? Our audience is anybody who needs to create an instructional video, period. Okay. <laughs> or, 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 or just even a, you know, image or something like that, a job, right? Aid, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So with that, you know, I'm curious as you, as you, you know, talk to customers, as you talk to people out there, do you, how do people make that journey? Because I think sometimes with L&D, that can be a little bit of a, a bumpy road because it goes against kind of the way we've been taught in the academic sense. But software, it seems a little more natural, I, I think. But but mm -hmm. are, do most of your consumers use it for software? Are you seeing people use it in different and creative ways? Um, we There are tons of uses, but we um, as aspire to do two really well. And one is... Um, academic lecture capture, general lecture capture. Okay. And there, the issue is engagement of the pr professor. The Ferrari looks nice, but people also might be a little afraid to drive it yeah. for the first time, if it's their first time driving. Yeah. You know? So um, how do you make it really easy? Um, and the other is t technology training, you know, so software training or software documentation. And there, you know, the, the general issue usually is pace of change. Um, and it, it is right. still speeding up that pace of change for software. So instructional designers play a different role in that they need to design, not create. Um, yeah. they, they can't, um, you can't script something out and do four reviews and, um, you know, tw tweak it so that the branding looks really good. By the time you're done with all this, software I've been there, right? You're like, oh, wow, you spend all this time getting it perfect. And then they're like, oh, well, we're doing a point release that actually changes the entire UI. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the, and the needs are different of, of the customer. I mean, I, I, you know, it's a challenging position to be um, creating customer education content for a software company. Like marketing wants it to be primarily focused toward net new acquisition and support wants it to be, you know, prevention of issues. So you don't need to, to call them. Product management wants it to be, get, get people using these key strategic features. But, you know, most customers want, there are there are fringes of brand new people and, and the, the expert power users, both who need to be served. But the masses, they just want to ask the question when they have it as they're using the software. Right. And it isn't necessarily something they think of as training. They just right. think of it as an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that goes back to this whole, right, formal learning versus performance support, which is, mm -hmm. I mean, is it, and, and I don't think, I think sometimes I see this, you know, kind of be almost an argument in our industry is like, well, performance support is king. No, formal learning is king. It's like, well, there's really not 
a right answer to that question. It's more, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And in software, a lot of times it's like, it's performance support. I mean, people really truly just need to know how do I go through, how do I go through this process? And so with this, cause the other thing is, you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, it's about making it easier, which sometimes can feel a little uncomfortable or threatening to, you know, people in the L and D space of, well, do we really want SMEs creating content? You know, is that, is that a, a safe space? They, they aren't formally trained in instructional design. What happens if we give them Snagit and they create a job aid without our approval? I'm curious, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I've heard, I've been part of these conversations where you're like, well, I think we'll live, you know, if, if Bill in accounting makes a job aid and doesn't have to come to us with a formal training request, but that's part of the mission that you've done with this, right? Is to democratize that. Yeah. It, um, no, no, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, again, um, everybody has knowledge to share. I mean, whether, um, you've sort of solved a problem with the fastest way to put something in your expense report and you want to share it with your coworker or you're sharing knowledge on, on YouTube um, or you're a, a professor, uh, you know, and none, none of those people necessarily have an instructional design background and, and they're not going to, but what, what we see and what we've actually tried to do in this Camtasia 2020 release is to, figure out how to improve the working relationship between the instructional designer who can design the process, design the framework, um, and how they work with the SME who ha has the knowledge, but um, maybe isn't comfortable even producing videos at all, or it's not really a big part of their, their job, right? So what we've done in this release of um, Camtasia is two, two things. One, we've really focused on this ability for someone like an instructional designer or a team lead, or internally we call them sh sheriffs, to create... <laughs> I love that. Yeah, to create... Um, to encapsulate everything that they, they might need, a template with placeholders and presets and libraries, encapsulate that into one file, and then to push that file out to deputies or SMEs. And they literally just have these guardrails and they can just come into these placeholders and replace media. And, and then there's a, a whole other set of features, which is a long list. And I know, I know you were looking at the beta, so you know them better than me. I know, but... <laughs> right? I've been playing around with it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, then there's just other features to try and make the workflow um, as, as efficient as possible for the individual users. So high throughput recording and magnetic tracks and track mats and some audio improvements and a whole bunch of things I'm going to forget. So someone's going to be mad at me that I didn't mention them right now. He's going to be like, Wendy, you didn't say this feature. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, and I think, and this is, so, so what we're talking about here, and I think this is something I've seen over the years is the role of L and D is, is changing. And I think that creates some discomfort for people. But I think on the other side, if anything, mm -hmm. I think it's elevating our role if we do it well, you know, mm -hmm. to, to this point that you brought up, you know, I think in the past, sometimes we've tried to be the gatekeeper of content, you know, we've, we've tried to be that, that gatekeeper, which, especially in Alan, or especially in software, I mean, it's this way, outside of software, but in software, especially, the pace of change is way too fast. It's way too fast to be like, you can't have a job aid unless we create the job aid. You can't have 
you know, a video unless we create the video because you'll just, you're, you'll yeah. always be playing catch up. But that doesn't mean our role is not important. And I think it's interesting where Camtasia 2020 has gone, which is you look at the subject matter experts and they aren't, they don't necessarily have the same skill set we do. And I feel like learning mm -hmm. is, is vastly misunderstood. You know, it's, it's the most misunderstood profession out. Well, I won't say the most, but right. I think a lot of people just think, well, you just, you make training. That's all you do. And I think there is an art and a science behind, you know, how you do this. And that's what it sounds like Camtasia has done. As it said, as an instructional designer, your role isn't necessarily to produce all of the videos, but your role is to architect, you know, using your skill set, what are the important components of video and pass that out. Is that, is that an accurate summary? Yeah, absolutely. How do we um, encapsulate everything we know um, about how we want to provide information to, to, to the user and, and do that consistently and logically, even when you're working across a large numbers of SMEs, but also like the other problem is like, the SMEs aren't always that willing, right, to, to take their time out and share it. So you need what? to make it almost like paint by numbers for, for them. It's, it's not always that the SMEs are clamoring to create this this content, um, but it's needed. And, um, yeah, so, so the instructional designers are playing this role to make that as easy as possible. Okay. And so with, with this capability, and I know we're kind of digging into 2020, and we don't need to go too far into it, but with this – it's, it's simplifying it, and, I, and I've played around with it a little bit. So you're creating a lot of what you're doing is creating right the, the stuff that a SME, not only like you said, because they may not necessarily want to, but they may not have the skill set or the capability to know how to create right these transitions or create these animations and things like that. They may know how to put a screen capture of them doing something right. in, but that may be the extent of their skill set. And by templatizing it, you can say, hey, these are the components we need you to do, but you're the expert. Do that. But we're, we're lifting the rest of that for you, correct? Exactly. And it's not even um, they don't have the skill set. They might not be the best use of their time, right? True. Like you might be this expert in one thing. You just need to share that that expertise. You don't necessarily need to worry about how to make it um, engaging um, okay. or, or consistent or findable. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that that's a fair point, right? It's not necessarily that they couldn't do it. It's just when you're going to SMEs, their their time, I mean, they're hired by the company to do a specific yeah. thing. You don't want your top software engineers spending all their time creating training videos because that's not what what yeah. you hired them for. So how did you I'm curious, you know, so this is this is a fairly robust new tool set that you're adding into it. What was the genesis of hey, because again, you said Camtasia and Snagit have been around for a long time and it continues to just evolve. What was the pain point you saw in the industry that you said, Hey, this is, this is where we need to go to keep this product relevant and actually meet the needs. I'm curious. Yeah. I think, um, if, if you look at, um, tools in the, um, learning space, learning tech space, like Camp Camtasia is already relatively unique in that it has never targeted um, professional instructional designers okay. or professional videographers as their key audience, right? They really, from day one, it's always been about democratization, about any anyone. The thing we realized in, in all this, and we have clients with 
site licenses for for Camtasia. Um, and is that we really weren't, um, we, we were always thinking about that individual user, like that that's sort of how we grew, grew up and that's what we think about and that's what we're passionate about. Okay. Um, but we weren't really thinking about the ecosystem of, of how it's used. And we had one client in, in particular that was trying to evolve their um, technical sales staff to use videos with customers. And, uh. you know, they were trying to like, give all this information about how to do it, but the information didn't show up in the product, right? And th that was really the the gap, you know? Okay. So what we've done is allow people who are creating those instructions for their deputies and their subject matter experts and the people they're asking to evolve to video um, to make, make all that knowledge and show up in the Camtasia product to make it easier. And we have, we have more to do. I mean, everything's incremental, but we're, we're pretty excited about, about this release and excited by the reaction we're getting from those customers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So with this, right, because I do think it's an important, if you look at use cases for this type of stuff, I mean, they're, it's not just software. I mean, I can tell you over the years we've done, and I think video, you hear it all the time. Videos, you know, becoming the big thing. Uh, well, not becoming, it is the big thing. And I think there's a lot of initiatives in companies, not just in L&D, to do more with video, right? To, to, to do more with video. But to your point, not everybody's necessarily comfortable with video or their time is best spent with it. So how do you, you know, how do you go through that and actually kind of simplify it? For yeah. But there's some challenges that that presents and I'm sure you've seen them, but have you seen organizations that are moving to this model, trying to almost empower the SMEs or guide the SMEs? I can share some perspective on my side, but I'm curious if you've seen, you're, you're very customer centric at TechSmith. So obviously these people come yeah. to you for these things. So what, what kind of hiccups or hurdles have you seen that you've had to mitigate with that? Um, yeah, I, I um, it, m most people are, are gra grappling with, with this. Um, you know, we another use case is how how do you? Um, we're working with one co company that has global support teams and hundred countries, right? And they, yeah. they need to, that's a technology company, and they they need to get there again their S SMEs to create content to train support yeah. <laughs> you know, in all kinds of different <laughs> translated languages and countries, et cetera. And how do you do that as, as quickly as possible? And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of that, um, you know, we, you know, we also, this approach helps with the templatization and the share deputy model, but the other part we're starting to look more and more at is how how good are automated language um, translation for um, yeah. English captions, um, you know, an, an easier way to create um, captions, easier way um, to, to edit audio, um, you know, all, all, all that kind of stuff are yeah. just little getches in, in the, in the process. But there, there are other organizations too, maybe software companies that have fewer, bigger clients that are, that are um, very controlled and process oriented for what training they provide those, those clients. And I'm not the CEO of those software companies, so I don't, I don't right. have an opinion if they're doing the right thing or not. But my, my experience is, um, I don't was it Meg Tyson or someone said you have a plan to get hit in the face or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it was Tyson. It was something yeah. along those lines, right? All the plans and you get punched in the, the face. The thing about software training is everyone creates software training 
the way they idealize the software works. Okay. Not not always the way people are actually trying to use the software in creative ways or there are often bugs in software. I know we don't want to talk about that. Um, but, there. you know, sometimes you need training to help people get around a bug or a workaround or an un unintended consequence or use case. And I find that these kind of, you know, search of excellence, this, this perfect controlled software training isn't really perfect if you ask the customers, because again, they're, they need what they need. And if you can't turn around that bit of help, as you said, performance support pretty quickly, you're not serving them. So you do, I think there's still more um, flexibility that that's needed in the industry to really look at their customers and are their customers really getting what they want, not just onboarded them after I sold, but a year later, are they really using the software, or the capability to, to the max and are happy the other thing I, I we see um, we're watching is sort of the role of marketing, customer education or user experience, customer success and support. You know, I, I think it's a shame that some of our clients were seeing quite a significant amount of siloing when it comes to creating content um, for technology and software. And and we and actually we do it ourselves. We're trying to break break down some of those silos. You really don't have time for that. The customer doesn't have time for that. They don't want to look in four different places um, for the same question. And um, so that that needs a lot of improvement in the industry too. Okay. Well, and I think the thing, you know, there's a couple of things you talked about that I think we can kind of dig into or just kind of highlight is you know, one of the things you talked about on the software side, and I don't think this is just software. So I'll, I will just tell you this. And anybody listening, I, <laughs> this is this is a real. I think a lot of times in learning and development, right? We design things around what we idealize reality is, right? You know, you, you think, and it, the example you used with software, right? Is oh well, software should work this way. This is the way people use it, and the the immediate visual I had that came to mind is like the sidewalk that goes like this. And the fact that the grass is all dead, you know, going from point A to point B in the triangle, because it's like, we'd like to think this yeah. is how people are using software. When in reality, that is not the path of least resistance. Yeah. And the reality is people will take the path of least resistance. So why don't we show, you know, and in a perfect world, we design on the path of least resistance, but that doesn't always happen. And I think, like I said, that's not just true for software. I think we do it with, with leadership skills. I think we do it with, well, this is how you have a conversation with your direct report. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> maybe, but like the 99 times out of a hundred where it actually happens, it doesn't look anything like this <laughs> nice scripted thing. And I think that's something where, you know, when you look at this, the ability to say, okay, that's where the democratization really comes in is it's like, if we're really putting ourselves aside and saying, what really is the customer need, right? What is what is their biggest need? That's where it makes sense. I think the other thing, though, that you have to kind of counterbalance a little bit, and I'm curious if you've seen how customers have done this, is there is that risk of, and I've seen it, right? You, you get version control issues. You get things where it's like all over the place. You know, and and you know, people are operating off the wrong thing and and things like that. So there is kind of this role and opportunity for L and D to help 
organize or or curate or kind of structure that. But I'm curious, how have you seen organizations kind of manage that? Because it can go off the rails. It has the potential to go off the rails. Everybody's creating their own thing. And it may even be wrong. It might be telling people do it this way. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want you doing it that way because there's a reason we don't. So I'm curious if you've seen it, you know, how people are managing that. Yeah, I um, I mean, the, the 2020 way to manage that is through crowdsourcing, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the best content comes to the top because it has the most usage or the most cross-links if, if you're Google or the most uh, favorites in, in YouTube. And I think what works, why the web is still usable in, in the public, um, you know, content domain has lessons for um, the, the private content domain that, that need to be shared that are much easier than trying to audit every piece of co content and deciding if it's useful. I mean, let your um, consumers, you know, cr crowdsource, leverage your engineers, leverage your tech support people, you know, to basically upvote or downvote co content that is relevant through a variety of means. Okay, I can't say I can point to a, a customer doing that. Um, you know, I'm th thinking about it on, on the fly right now. Um, <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> I think most customers who've embraced um, a large amount of content have actually just gone ahead and made that co content public. Because what happens, well, okay, so we're, we're, we're case in point. We have vi videos on our website. We have a Zendesk knowledge base. We have, um, we have, certification training and a you know third-party video hosting software we have a te free TechSmith academy um all available from our website we have a um a, you know online community f forum um you know one a, a very large and, and active one and you know where our customers go to get help where google <laughs> they go to google they type their question into google okay um so I think a lot of people are realizing if you want your content to be, you, your content needs to be used to have value. Right? Everyone gets that one metric. If you want it to be used, it has to be findable. So where are your, your users actually going to find content? And there are certainly um, software companies that are small enough and intimate enough customer bases that that isn't as, as relevant. We, we have 65 million users worldwide. They're going to Google. You you cannot create yeah you cannot create enough stuff for every single possible thing that sixty five yeah. million customers might need help with. Okay. Exactly. Well, you know, and what's interesting about it is, and this again goes back to I think a little bit of a mindset shift that is is needed a little bit because there is this you know, I are there I, I will say are there certain situations where it's like right this is. A life or death type thing. We need to make sure people are following a specific procedure a certain oh, way. Sure. sure, right? We we're we're not talking about that. Like, hey, let the wild west go and let people figure it out. Um, you know, they're, they're, you definitely have to do a bit of a risk assessment around. Okay, what really is the risk associated with this? But I think, unfortunately, what's happened over time, or maybe it's just been this way, is there is this kind of well, if let's take that one percent and then let's apply it to everything else. You know, if one percent of things we need mm -hmm. to version control and lock down and not let people do anything, why not just do that to everything? And what's interesting on the crowdsourcing pieces, there have been 
a number of things, um, a number of situations over the years where, you know, we've, we've tried to democratize or we have democratized this stuff. And some of the initial challenges are kind of this gut reaction of, well, what happens if somebody creates something that's wrong? And what I've found over the years is people, people, people are better at rooting that stuff out than we ever are. You know, I mean, it very quickly rises to the surface that, Hey, somebody made this and that's, that's not actually how it works. And it, it actually feeds back to us to help kind of control it and be able to say, Hey, you know what, let's, let's do something about that. I will also say that's like the, the 5%. (laughs) It's not the other 95. Yeah. I, you, I mean, we, we do, you know, we have a free trial model, so we do a lot of net new user um, acquisitions. So that first getting started training, super important to us, yeah. highly debated and um, need, needs to be perfect, like for our risk reward needs. And then we have like super power users who are really important for us because they support many of those other 65 million users on on the internet and are advocates for us and they need advanced training okay but those those two groups yeah 10 percent you know that the the rest of of the people um they're, they're not they're much more they're much less concerned with um their their actual experience is isn't a complaint that they saw something that wasn't quite right. It's that they couldn't find it at all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I think something that's important for people who may be watching who aren't necessarily as familiar with the whole learning tech stack is some of these, some of these challenges that we're talking about aren't necessarily TechSmith challenges, right? Cause yours, your tools are for the creating the content. It's not necessarily the distribution management, you know, all this other stuff for, mm-hmm. especially like in the corporate space, it's like, well, you, you make this stuff, but it's, it's some of these other tools then that are managing and doing that. And I think that's where, you know, there is more of a strategy that you have to put behind that other than just, well, what tools, what tools can we, can we get to do that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, so the other thing too, I'm curious, you know, when it comes to, I'm just curious your your take and, and how TechSmith handles this because so you just talked about right when new users come on, there's a fair amount to kind of get them up to speed. And that can especially be challenging in in the corporate setting where you know you now are asking SMEs to create content or say, hey, we need we need you to build a video or a job aid or things like that. And they haven't maybe used these tools before. How how are how have you supported organizations or what's your recommendation for people when they're doing this? Because it can be a little terrifying for an L and D org to be like, wait, we're asking a whole bunch of people to start using Camtasia and maybe they've never made a video in their life. <laughs> um, well, for, first they they can take some comfort that. Um, that, that, you know, that's what we do. Like we, um, we probably train, I don't know, millions of, of brand new video users every, every few years. And, um, most of, um, people starting to use Camtasia have never created a video before from, from any, any products. So that, that's who we target that. That's what we do. Um, and that's sort of part of the philosophy of the product itself. We think about le- learning curve and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they can first take some comfort that 
most people are figuring this that's out. Their audience, right? Yeah, they're just they're downloading it. They're learning it. Um, you know, so I don't I don't know that they that that instructional designer needs to necessarily feel like oh I need to train someone how to create video. I think they need to think a lot more about what what's important um, about how what they're creating fits into my strategy, you know, and and provide that direction of how you focus that that content creation. You know, like if you only want three minute videos, so you have you know, re reusability or, you know, um, wh whatever you need to communicate those standards for, for your organization. Um, and that's, that's something you could do with uh, the Camtasia templates. Like you can show a placeholder and, and put in notes. So people see what, what the expectations are and how it might fit in. Um, what other uh, recommendations? Um, I, I think, um, a lot of people who are technical and creating content or, who are subject matter experts, like our ed educators, um, they often um, start by recording a PowerPoint presentation. You know, that, that's, um, if you are, um, have a, a certain amount of anxiety to get, get started, like that can be- A natural starting place. Yeah, first task that has that high productivity feel that I created a video with my voiceover. Okay. And by the way, a, a PowerPoint with a voiceover, is so much better than a PowerPoint. Yeah. True. Yeah. No, that's, that's a fair, right. And I think it's one of those things. And sometimes it's, it's easy to kind of become an, an L and D snob a little bit, right? Because we know what, like all these cool things we can do and we've got all the experience doing some of these things. And so sometimes that's, that's fair. The initial reaction be like, Oh, voiceover PowerPoint, we can do better than that. But if you've never created a video before, it can be a pretty easy entry point in and to your point if the alternative is here we're emailing you a powerpoint that's that is significantly worse than than yeah. a voiceover powerpoint so it's a yeah. stepping stone absolutely yeah yeah and then you get to use a oh what in that you can use snag it for so it's a little bit easier of, of step in and you learn how not to be afraid of your webcam and how your audio works on your machine. And I, you know, I, Hey, people have made a uh, lots of money doing that. And, and you know, the, the YouTuber and professional publishing space too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's something that, you know, on our end as, as we look, because the reality is in learning and development, our roles changing and we have to look at the masses. If that's not incorporated into our strategy as part of our, of part of our content strategy, that's we're, we're going to be behind because we need to be able to incorporate some of those things in and, and bringing them up to speed. While you may not, you know, have the the high end flashy content coming out of the gate, I've seen it personally. Right, people who start they started creating a they started creating a voiceover PowerPoint and then they discovered you know fade and then they discovered how they can mm -hmm. you know do a little animated intro on the front and you start to see that evolution of you went from, you know, a rough voiceover PowerPoint to, hey, actually created some pretty, yeah. pretty interesting stuff over time. I'll, I'll, sh I'll share too. Um, I, I, you know, we're, we're in, we're all in a certain situation. I got a little distracted because yeah. my dog, dog was barking outside my door. <laughs> I had to text my family to ask them to remove move the dog who, who wanted into the study um, d during this. It's, it's a whole new world of um, 
you know, work, work life balance. And the, the biggest thing we're seeing that makes me think about, you know, just voiceover in your PowerPoints um, into a video is, is this role of asynchronous versus synchronous communication. Yeah. And we, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a, a tough um, few months, like we've talked to hundreds of higher ed suddenly making transitions to remote. And of course, their, their first go-to is streaming, you know, Zoom and, and WebEx to, to replace those in-person classrooms. And it, that makes total sense. But meetings, like live meetings um, via re remote, have the same problems of live meetings in person. <laughs> I think they're exponentially worse because it's like, I feel like when you go virtual live, all the things that you kind of could get away with oh, yeah, in engagement. person just like blow up. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. But the, but the fundamental engagement problem, I got two uh, college kids home um, t t telling, telling me this is um, it, it, at that particular moment may not be the moment they are ready to consume the, the content. Yeah. And um just just mentally right like you can shame and blame people for not paying attention but yeah you know people have other stuff on their mind or they might be distracted or tired or whatever and and when you record that presentation and you tr you trust them to view it um at a time that they can absorb it when they're they're ready and interested and motivated to to absorb it um it's better like like both have pros and cons but um it, it leaves fewer people behind, right? Yeah. If you if you have that that recorded um, lecture, that recorded PowerPoint presentation, um, and you can get it out faster. You don't have to wait for people to be available for a meeting. Who and none of the people are always show up anyway, and those people <laughs> get left behind, and you still have to figure out how to engage them. So I I think there's a pretty big role to to stop doing one way lectures like presenting a PowerPoint live and re record those and kind of discuss those asynchronously and, and test the knowledge of those more, more asynchronously these days. Yeah. I think that's where things are going. Well, you know, what's funny is on, on that topic, you know, while we're moving to this and discovering a lot of this stuff, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is, I mean, we've been saying this in L and D for a long, right? Sage on the stage guide on the side, like this, all these like instructional design concepts, L and D concepts have been out there. We just, that's one of the things that's been interesting about this whole crisis is it's almost been like a wrecking ball. That's exposed a lot of the things we've maybe known, but haven't been willing to take forward. And it, it's interesting last week, I, I made this comment and somebody reached out and I had to clarify was that, you know, I, I mentioned the fact that from my perspective, live is the actual worst way to deliver content. It's the most inefficient way to do it because from a content consumption standpoint, all the points you mentioned, it's like not everybody is on the exact same page. Now, where it can work is if you're in a one-on-one -on -one tutoring environment. Sure then fine, right? Because you can truly adapt. You know, I'm talking with, with Wendy and I can tell Wendy's having a hard time. So we're going to, we're going to revisit that concept. Well, now you have two people, your time split. Now you have five, 10, 15, right? Immediately that becomes a problem where delivering the content is extremely inefficient to do it live. And I think that's where some of these tools, you know, like that you've created that, that others have created as part of their strategy. It's like, well, Let's democratize content. Let's get it to people where they need it, the way they need it, 
and they can consume it how and when they need it, then let's use the live time to do the things that you can't do asynchronously as well, like solve problems, like collaborate, you know, things like that, that, you know, can be a little bit more challenging. So it's, it's an interesting point you bring up and I, and I would completely agree with it. Are you seeing that, you know, are you seeing that, especially cause I know a, a large part of your market maybe, or a growing part now, if it wasn't before is academic settings, correct? I mean, are you seeing that more are people starting to adopt this more asynchronous model? Um, I, I, they're starting to adopt it more in a, asynchronous settings. It'll be, uh, sorry, in, um, educational settings, it, okay. it'll be interesting to see what happens with K, K through 12. Like my college kids who are working, studying from home, um, primarily have zoom live meetings. Um, yeah. but K through 12 in Michigan, we just came back into session and they, they had made the decision not to do that mainly because of the impact of parents. Um, yeah. and needing, you need more flexible scheduling and being home with the kids and everything is asynchronous. And, um, again, not, not that I would wish that, you know, this, this would continue and hope, hope that it wouldn't, but you have to wonder, um, do these organizations need to be more prepared for something like this in the future? And, you know, what, what do they need to have in place um, for continuity of learning in an asynchronous setting? So I, anyone uses our products is doing them asynchronously because we create video, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But I'm not sure it's as much part of the strategy now is it'll, it'll have to be at a, after something like this, you know, in a couple of years from now. Well, and what's what's interesting about it, because I, I agree with you, right? I mean, we sh this is something that we all need to be preparing for. Not not even that it's necessarily, oh, when's the next pandemic coming, even though and people are like, well, there's another one coming, wave two, wave three. I mean, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think the part that we haven't always taken into consideration is the fact that whether there's a pandemic or not, people do miss out on opportunity for other reasons, which mm -hmm. is why we need to think about this, right? You, I mean, in, in the academic setting, you have a sick day. You just missed the entire day. There is no, like, when, when you're sticking to just the true synchronous classroom setting, it's like, well, what happens when you're too sick to show up? Like, you just, you missed out on all of that. And I think that's been something that, for me personally, has always been a big driver of, it's not that we're trying to kill the classroom or the live stuff because it's bad. It's because it's more limited. It's more yeah. limited in terms of who you can reach. And there are people that miss out on things because of that, because they can't be there. So if you can democratize that content and say, hey, regardless of whether you can be there or not, great if you are. But if you're not, you can consume that in a different way. That's just better for everybody. That's not a that's not a one way's good or bad. Yeah. I think. Plus, that way, if they're sick, they don't come to lecture hall because they can make it. <laughs> right. Which hopefully, after this whole thing, right, this should. I think I'm hoping that this does open up some of those doors because before there were a lot of people who would be like, "Well, I'm," you know, you think from working from home or or going to training or whatever. It was like, "Well, I'm going to go even though I don't feel well because." If I don't, I'm going to miss it. And that, you know, we've, we've now seen that's something that we don't want to encourage. So if nothing else, hopefully post all this, that won't be a risk anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So on this, the, the other piece that I wanted to talk about a little bit, um, and this has been this has been a fun discussion on this because there's another there's another product when we're talking about democratizing and kind of accessibility to content that you you know hinted at before that's that's coming um, from TechSmith to kind of help from an accessibility standpoint, correct? Um, yeah, we well we have um, a, a brand new product we're really excited about. Um, in the audio space called okay. Audi 8. Um, that's also coming out um, the 28th uh, when the new major for Camtasia 2020 comes out. And it um, it's really targeted, um, again, for anyone needs to be able to make vi video vo voiceovers, including people who don't know how to edit waveforms, although you can do that <laughs> in this tool. Right. Um, so it's really meant to make um, recording and editing your voice um, as easy as editing text in a document. That's actually what it is. You you record your voice or you in, import a vo voiceover recording. It'll convert that to text. You can edit the text, um, you know, removing duplicate words or ums or ahs or a pause or something you wish you didn't say, yeah. um, not not by working with the waveform, but just by edit, editing the, the visual text and then um, saving that out. And yeah, it would help with the accessibility because you can save that out as a caption SRT file um, and include those captions or you save it out as a, a wave file and, and bring it into Camtasia for your video voiceover or another product. Okay. Okay. So really designed to help from a transcription standpoint, bring this stuff, um, bring this stuff to light. So I'm curious from, from that standpoint, right? New product in the portfolio. What, what, what kind of brought that to light in terms of, Hey, you know what we need to, we need to, a gap again you're very consumer centric so something had to be out there that you said this is a problem that i think with our expertise <laughs> and our product set we can solve where did that come from yeah um well we have actually there's one um youtuber who use, uses camtasia okay. um that I just coincidentally, I, some of us follow the channel and then one one day at one of the start of the videos he said this is my fifth attempt at doing my voiceover for this video. Like you, you just kept <laughs> messing up and then he'd re-record it, you know, from, from the beginning. You just, your heart goes out you to felt, me. Yeah, you felt the pain watching it. You're like, we've all been there. No one talks about it. Everyone does it. So we did, you know, some surveys and we found out, yeah, audio is just a huge pain, pain point. And again, like all of our other products, we're not trying to, target the professional musician. Um, we're just trying to target the average person who's trying to share knowledge with um, a voiceover. We'd like to make that easy, you know, get get to that professional sound as easy as possible. Okay. Um, so that's what's motivating us. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think, you know, I've, I've seen a number of folks in our space now that, you know, have so it sounds like, right, it's solving that problem, which I think is huge. It's, it's again, it's a problem nobody wants to talk about. Everybody would like to pretend like, oh, yeah, that that video I created, first take, perfect. <laughs> and you're like, no, it didn't. You you were umming and on and stopping and hitting pause and re-record 300 times. You just don't want to admit that that's what happened. So I think, you know, I can see it in that sense, really being a, a problem solver. But I think the other thing that is really growing is, you know, one with more and more people creating content, there is from an accessibility standpoint, there is this misunderstanding that like everybody can hear it, 
right? That if you're creating a video, everybody can hear what's being said. And that's not, mm -hmm. that's not the case. And from a functionality standpoint, not everybody's always watching content where they can listen to it. I think that's the other thing. So even yeah. just pragmatically, you might be watching a video on the, on the subway or, you know, wherever. And I've done it, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, I don't really want to have the volume up. I just want to be able to read what's being said. But yeah. then you have other people who truly can't hear it. I mean, yeah. they just can't hear it. And I think that is a gap that has been overlooked in the video space for a long time. Well, obviously a big part of our business is education. And we um, have been working on ADA standards as part of our lecture capture solution for, for a while. So we've, um, you know, we've had ca caption editing as, as part of that. It's very important to us. Um, but I'll also share, I mean, we're a global company we have we we sell in over 222 countries we do not have our own software localized to more than a, a handful of languages and what what tends to be true is people who um it's maybe hard for them to follow spoken english to yeah. um read right. language barriers that's yeah yeah, or even my accent, right? I have a, a, an accent. If I'm speaking a little fast, it's just a little bit harder, even if someone knows English as a second language to follow. So part of that accessibility is global accessibility too. Like you want any anybody, you know, regardless of um, their language skills to be able to follow along as much as possible. So even if it's English only, yeah, have, having those captions is huge. Yeah. Well, and going back to, I mean, another use case for it is, uh, going to the globalization of things. I mean, translations can be challenging. And I think being able to get that in text format, even if the audio is not in your your native language, being able to translate at least the transcript of it to yeah. your language makes it easier to follow along um, you know, with, with what's going on in things. And again, it's all about democratizing content to get the greatest use for the betterment of, of everybody. So, yeah. Cool. Well, I've got to say, I've got to say, um, this is, this has honestly been fantastic. I, I know we've been working to kind of get you on here for, for a bit and it worked out that we were able to shift you in the lineup, especially four days before some, some big product releases. So folks that are watching it, it's right around the corner and I can tell you a fair amount of them are very familiar with your products. Having looked over at the comments here and there throughout, there's there's a lot of people. I I make Camtasia videos. I I've used this, so you've you've got some fans. You've got some fans that have been watching. So with that, you know, thanks so much, Wendy. For those of you watching, definitely keep your eyes open for for the new Camtasia. And what was the other one? Audiate. Audiate. Mm -hmm. Audiate. Okay, so right four days from now, uh, people can definitely check those out. So thanks for being here. Thanks everybody as always for tuning in. And, uh, you know, hopefully we, we addressed all the great things that, that you were chatting about along the way, and we will see you uh, next week. Have a good weekend. And thanks again, Wendy. Thank you.